Hey everyone, just a quick message before we get started with this show. I am recording here on a hilltop in San Cristobal de las Casas, Mexico, where I'm taking a group of 13 teenage self-directed learners around on one of my six-week unschool adventures trips. And I just wanted to let you know that I have another unschool adventures trip coming up later this year in September and October 2022 called Eurotrip which is also for a group of approximately a dozen teenage self-directed learners, homeschoolers, unschoolers, alternative school students. Heck, you can be doing whatever you want as long as you can make six weeks to come on this trip. And we'll start in Poland and we'll end in Portugal and we will figure out together how to get from Eastern Europe to far Western Europe. That's what Eurotrip is. If you know a teenager who might be interested in this, please encourage them to apply before February 12th. Just like all my other trips, each one is a sort of different creation, and sometimes they don't happen if there's not enough interest. And so it really helps if you apply early, so we know that there's enough of a critical mass to let this trip run. All right, back to Mexico, and for you, back to the episode. My guest today is Seth Fry, a professor of communication at the University of California, Davis, with an expertise in the science of self governance, and also a friend from our college days. Hi, Seth. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you. Uh, I think first we should discuss how we know each other. So would you like to take a, a shot at this? Yeah, we, um, we lived together in uh, a community of 130 people in college. Um, uh, you were the, the the kitchen manager, so you got um, cheaper rent uh, in order to was it keep the kitchen clean? No, it was uh, you were czar of hearth, I think. Is that I, right? I was or, the food manager. Food manager. There was a so, separate yeah. kitchen manager that kept the kitchen running. I just ordered all the food. Uh, and and so um, so there was a really large governance system in this community um, called Casa Zimbabwe. Um, where everyone had chores, everyone cooked for each other and cleaned after each other and uh, took care of each other. Um, and uh, um, uh, I didn't really recognize it at first as self-governance. I recognized it as a fun place to live with fun people, including you. Um, uh, but it, uh, but that's what it was. And that ended up having a big influence on me. Yeah, on me too. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So we're going to circle back to the, the co-ops. But first, can you tell everyone... Uh, a little bit about your your professional career and and the work and research you've been doing recently. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a I'm a professor, and that means um, most uh, mostly often that means I teach. Also, that means I research. Uh, in my view, I, I uh, mostly do the research. So um, I continued living in community um, long after college, um, and got more and more into it into the variety of co-ops. And um, I continued into graduate school where I, I was a co-founder of a, of a co-op out in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, Indiana University, where I was pursuing my PhD. Uh, and I met this woman named Eleanor Ostrom um, through a, another friend who had been in the Stanford co-ops. I'd crashed a party. And he, and he mentioned that there's this, this woman who has spent 50 years studying um, self-organized governance systems around the world using ethnography, using mathematical modeling, <laughs> using laboratory experiments, using meta-analysis, um, and that she was a real uh, whirlwind. 
Um, and I eventually um, took her class, met her, got her on my committee, uh, learned a lot from her and was really inspired that all the problems I was experiencing in my little small self-governing community um, in Bloomington, Indiana, um, that there was a science to that, that I could study that um, and learn about it. I, I, I tried bringing literature to, to house meetings and eyes would glaze over about, you know, should we use rewards or punishments to keep the kitchen sink clean and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, that was, um, you know, 2009. Um, I've been doing that ever since. Um, getting uh, data sets about small communities that run themselves. Um, often uh, online communities, because it's easier to get data on them. Often um, uh, youth run communities because um, uh, they're doing a lot of the self-governance online. Um, uh, and yeah, just trying to get an understanding of when it works, when it fails, what, 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 are, what are people bringing to these communities in terms of their background? What are their motivations for taking leadership role? What mistakes are they making? What are their perceptions of uh, leadership and self-governance and how are those different from the real thing? Um, these are all questions I'm super passionate about, um, personally, uh, professionally, and kind of big picture social change wise. Uh, and yeah, um, getting paid to think is really fun, especially to think about things that you think are important like this. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and I think this will apply to the realm of education, uh, especially for anyone who has a kid in a self-directed learning center or a, especially a democratic free school like a Sudbury school uh, I mean this is very this is a very direct application uh, but also I think this applies to communities of young people that form without you know heavy-handed adult guidance and this is what happens in homeschooling co-ops uh, this is what happens in summer camps like not back to school camp where I've worked uh, and so I think this has a lot of interesting application because it, it circles back to this question of like, is it responsible to give young people large amounts of autonomy? What are they going to do with it? Is it going to be complete mayhem? And, and so this is why I thought you would be a great guest uh, on the show. But now let's circle back to those co-ops, Seth, because I think a lot of people don't have any real exposure to this, this form of living. And it might seem at a minimum curious and entertaining to many people. So uh, I'll say a little bit about what it was like living in the, the student co-ops in Berkeley. And then I'd love to hear your take on those co-ops. And then also about the communities you lived in after college and the co-op that you started in Bloomington. So the co-ops in Berkeley, I actually was intending to go move into the dorms and Berkeley was impacted. There was too many students when I was starting school there. And so they said, you got to go find your own housing. And so I went searching for alternatives and I found the co-ops and they cost two thirds as much as the dorms. Yeah. And they had this fun, gritty feeling. And so I, I moved into the co-op you mentioned, which was literally called Casa Zimbabwe. And I remember the, the temporary room that I moved into, uh, you know, my, my family was there, you know, my little sister who's like nine years old was there. And, you know, the, the F word, just F-U-C-K, was just scrawled across the the wall there. And I thought, <laughs> oh, lovely. And there was, you know, weed smoke in the common area. And the, this was summer. And so the kitchen was filthy. And I thought, you know, geez, what am I getting myself into? And I knew that the co-ops were cheaper because 
they didn't pay anyone to do the cleaning or the cooking or the managing of the place like you would have at a normal student dorm. And we, uh, the co-op members, all had to do five hours of work per week for the house. And, and I got involved in the cooking side of things. And so I was responsible. I was on a team of four people and prepared a dinner every Thursday night for the roughly 90 people who would show up out of the 130 who live there on an average weekday dinner night. And, uh, and eventually, as you mentioned, I became the, the food manager, which was an elected position. I had to run for it, run against other people. And, and that, that did pay for my, my room and board, which was a, a great benefit. And, uh, and there's so much more to say, but you know, that, that was the, the basics uh, of the co-op for me. You know, we could talk about the wild parties. We could talk about the, the meetings that went on for hours and hours every Sunday night. But, but what stands out to you about those years in Casa Zimbabwe, Seth? Um, you know, there, there's, <laughs> I sort of remember two housemates. So like to give a sense, like all the rules, all the structure of the meetings that existed, how meetings were run, the, the positions that existed, um, how many hours you got for them. That was all determined kind of by past generations of people who lived there. And we inherited a lot of that. Um, some of it had to work really well. Um, the kitchen actually, um, got like um, restaurant grade inspections by the city and actually got shut down one year for not meeting passing yeah, those inspections. That's right. Um, so we actually had to be on top of our stuff for some parts of life. Other parts of life, we didn't have to be on top of our stuff, but there are all kinds of just like nice, clever institutions that were very specific to that house. One example, do you remember the uncooperative fine? Uh, help me remember. It, it was a it was a ten dollar fine that anyone could give anyone else for like doing something uncooperative and it just was instantly applied like i i give you an uncooperative fine and you now owe 10 bucks to the community except you could appeal it you could go to the the the, <laughs> the weekly meeting and try to fight back and make your case that you shouldn't have to pay this ten dollars which is what happened when uh one person saw another person reaching with her fingers into the house peanut butter in the fridge and licking uh licking her finger licking peanut butter her that is a ten dollar fine for sure then, then reaching her fingers into the jam <laughs> for a sort of breadless uh, utensil free pb and j so she got a cooperative plan and she tried to fight it <laughs> You know, what you're making me so think impressed. of, uh, you know, I totally forgot about that. But what I will always remember is that you could get double work shift hours if you were doing dishes naked. You know, and of course, most people would wear a, a, an apron. And so you really only see the, the backside naked. But still, that, that always stood out to me. And my, my mom came to visit once when when I was finishing school and she saw some some butt cheeks while we were touring the kitchen. And, and she said, is that normal? And I said, yeah, that that's normal here in the co-ops. It's a great illustration of, uh, you know, um, an institution that's specifically tailored to the kind of cultural environment and, and the inseparability of, uh, you know, a culture and, and norms, um, if you want to get academic about it. I do. Um, so <laughs> so uh, my experience, you know, co-ops really did start for me as just a fun place to live. It was several years before I kind of had my moment of Zen um, where I realized that, uh, oh, like, I literally own this. This is literally mine. Um, and it can be 
uh, how I think it should be if I'm willing to work for that. And I can find a place in it that's aligned with what kind of human I want to become. Uh, that it took like three years. It took a long time of just like being a part of it and and being you know um, going along with it kind of before I started to see that there was a bigger role you know uh, that that it meant that it meant something to me and that it was a you know it could be a part of my path whatever I wanted my path to be. Um, and and so it was really formative uh, for me in that sense. And just to get some groundwork here, the, the form of governance that we employed in Casa Zimbabwe, uh, I know it as Robert's Rules of orders, uh, Order, and essentially a majority ruled on, on most uh, things that we would vote on, and there was a lot of voting. And every once in a while, you needed two-thirds of, the, of the, whoever was present. Uh, you know, there was a minimum number of people necessary, the, the quorum number. Uh, and to do something bigger, like to modify the bylaws of the House, you would need two-thirds. But for most things, it was a 51% majority rule. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So um, there's lots of, uh, you know, it was a democracy. Uh, and there's lots of ways to run a democracy. Uh, and one of them is based on uh, parliamentary procedure, uh, uh, which is just a good way of kind of scaling democracy to work for lots of people, but can be used for, you know, less than a dozen. Uh, and the sort of standard way of the, the standard work that adapted parliamentary procedure out of parliaments into small groups of, of people to run garden clubs and bowling clubs and Elks lodges um, is called Robert's Rules. Uh, uh, Robert's, I think he was like a Civil War general or something, or some kind of um, uh, uh, 19th century military figure, um, uh, but also just like brought this uh, mo uh, to mostly, I think to Americans, it might be a very American thing. I'm not, I'm not positive. Um, and yeah, it's a bunch of like rules and procedures for how to make decisions as a group in a democratic way. And so tell me about the communities you lived in after Berkeley and the co-op you started. What kind of governance structures were used there? Um, well, I've lived in uh, consensus houses where everyone has to agree um, to do something before anything gets done. And that's very um uh, I was anti-consensus for a long time. Now I'm kind of more balanced. It's got upsides and downsides. Upsides being that everyone um, uh, gets, uh, um, everyone's, you know, a, a consents, everyone's on board. Uh, downside being it's way more inefficient. It scales pretty badly um, uh, often. Um, it takes a lot more training and a lot more, um, sense of the room ability to vibe like it takes people with a certain set of skills really like well-grounded uh, and a certain set of values kind of very in place or it can go off rails very easily a certain like level of sensitivity um also for as radical as consensus is um as a decision-making system it's inherently conservative right because you have to to this the, the the default is the status quo um, and it takes everybody to change the status quo, as opposed to half of people to change the status quo. Okay, so conservative uh, in the sense of literally conserving the what has already come before. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, respect for the past, uh, if you want to like get literal about what conservative means. Um, other systems, I've lived in, you know, um, 130 was, was Casa Zimbabwe. I've lived in smaller, which is like three people where we would, we, we didn't need meetings. We could just talk about it. Um, 
I'm living now in a in a duocracy uh, where um, you, to the extent that something's reversible, you just do it. And the less reversible it is, the more you announce you're going to do it, the more you take some input before doing it, uh, the more you maybe come up with a plan for how to how you're going to reverse it. So the more you loop you, you loop people in to the extent that um, uh, they can't just go, that it'll take work to undo what you did. Um, another one I lived in was 400 people, and that one actually was a federation. <laughs> it uh, it was actually 30. So it was one building of 400 people. This is in Hokkaido, Japan, where I got to spend two summers as a grad student. Um, and the building was structured with 30 kitchens. Uh, and so the house had divided into 30 self-governing units of about 20 people or 15, 20 people, 12, 20, you know, somewhere around there. Uh, and so every single one had its own governance system, ran in its own way. And then the house as a whole would send like representatives up to make decisions and had you know, staff elected by the membership and, and, and so on. That was the, the most elaborate governance system I've seen. So you really just see it all. Um, wait, have I seen any benevolent dictatorships? Eh. There's always soft power. I haven't lived in a community. I think you see this more in religious uh, intentional communities um, uh, where there's one person who kind of makes all the decisions. And that's super efficient. Ironically, um, I find myself, you know, as someone who loves democracy, very often standing up for the power of um, uh, of, of leadership and, and benevolent dictators, even among, uh, and, and actually part of my conviction for that is my, some of my research um, on uh, child-led self-governance. Excellent. Uh, we're going to get to that research in a second. I want to make the connection now between what you're describing and, and what takes place in, in these educational institutions and, and also within families. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that within standard conventional schools, whether public or private, that there's very little governance. Uh, there may be some sort of so-called student government, but I think everyone quickly figures out that, that, that those don't have any teeth. And, and most, most students in schools, uh, from my perspective, tell me if I've been too, too jaded here, Seth, you know, they, they recognize that it is a benevolent, benevolent dictatorship. And, and while they can sometimes rally together to, to advocate for some cause, you know, better meals or some new student group, you know, effectively, they have almost no voice. Am I being fair? I, I, I was in student government. And um, until this moment, until you just started talking about it, I've never considered my experience um, as yeah, student body treasurer to have anything to do with my interest or past or history or experience as in self-governance. So I think you're totally right. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you mentioned that you live in a community of three people, um, or you have lived in a community of three people, and I feel like that's on the scale of what a lot of families have to navigate. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there are issues of soft power there. There are issues of like, what do we vote on? You know, what's up for discussion, and and what's not. And so that's that's its own little world. And then for me, uh, when I was lived in the co-ops, and I saw the the, the interesting power of this uh, the system that we were using, 
Uh, and then I got to, to learn about Sudbury schools, which are a specific form of democratic free schools. I was immediately taken by them because I thought, okay, this is like live, living in the co-ops when you are a teenager or, or when you're anywhere from K to 12. And they had a very similar uh, system of Robert's Rules of Order, and you could run for elected positions, you could become a clerk, you could become the person who runs the, the whole weekly school meeting. And you could be a six-year-old who does that if you have the skills. And that's what I really appreciated about these democratic free schools, which was if you have the competency and you can advocate for yourself and you can basically manage people, age is irrelevant. And I thought that's how the world should be. That's what, what fair is. And, uh, you know, since then, I, I am no longer so enamored with uh, democratic schools per se because they get kind of like in the co-ops, they can just get, get mired with all sorts of bureaucracy. And I think where this came up for me the most was in, under, in better understanding the uh, judicial system within these Sudbury schools, the judicial committee, um, and how sometimes you can get written up in one of these schools for a, a completely minor infraction that really should be dealt with on just the level of, of individuals or like individuals plus like a, a friendly third party. And, but all of these little tiny things like uh, he, you know, he grabbed my apple and took a bite out of it, you know, gets pushed through the judicial committee there. Huh. And, and I've seen these schools where there's actually not many kids who want to be on the judicial committee because it's such a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, wow. I did a whole episode on Sudbury schools specifically with Matthew Goya last year. Uh, if anyone who wants to talk about the get into the weeds on those issues. Uh, but uh, what are you thinking right now as, as I'm describing this, Seth? And do you have any experience with democratically run schools? Um, I have no experience with democratically run schools, um, uh, except the, the little snippets I've dug up for trying to find interesting cases, um, you know, like you of, of, of child directed uh, or youth directed self-governance. Um, but I, I can totally resonate with um, this attitude toward democracy that it's kind of a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of process uh, um, for, you know, uh, for sometimes very minor decisions and yeah. And, and sometimes it's kind of just too much. It, like it's not right for everything. I think it's right when the stakes are really high. Um, that's when you, when people can muster the kind of energy necessary to do it and do it right. And uh, where if you're just applying it, yeah, to, to um, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I got uh, my, what was that? My apple got stolen. Um, yes. That's, that's just kind of slightly overkill. Um, depend, if you if you don't have a culture in place that values democracy so much to elicit that level of of passion from everybody necessary to do again do it right. So let's talk about your research now. And I know that it involves Minecraft. I know that it involves yeah. World of Warcraft, and and these are games that are both very popular. I think with uh, many of the kids of people who listen to this podcast. So please uh, give Club us a Penguin. survey. Yeah, Club Penguin too uh, for the slightly older kids. Um, so let's see. I'm a social scientist. I study society. I used to study individuals. I was trained as a cognitive scientist. To study cognitive science, 
um, to study humans, right? You need a lot of them. You need a bunch. You need like a couple hundred. So I would run lab studies. A bunch of humans would come into my lab and I would study them all and come up with averages over these hundreds of people. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's how you try to learn about individual humans. Moving to society, um, I need lots of societies. I need a bunch of them. I need a lot of Earths. Um, if we're going to, there's, there's questions that you can't ask at the unit of analysis of the human. You need to ask at the unit of analysis of the social system. Uh, man's inhumanity to man, right? Like these big kinds of questions are social questions. Um, and so I was thinking, how do I get more than one society, more than one earth? Um, I could, you know, I've lived in 10 co-ops, but 10 isn't enough to do science on really. And they're also different from each other. Um, eventually I was talking to some, um, video game nerds and they started, to, I'd heard about Minecraft. I'd even played it a bunch as a single player game, but I learned that there's a very elaborate multiplayer ecosystem, entirely player and community driven, um, that there are literally hundreds of thousands of Minecraft servers. Um, Minecraft is a, uh, do I, should I define Minecraft or do parents know what Minecraft is? No, no. G give us the, the high level. Uh, okay. Yeah, breakdown. Um, it's a it's a it's a video game. It's a virtual world game. It doesn't have a plot. You just build stuff. Um, it's the precursor to Roblox, which is a little bit more of a contemporary reference, I think, for a lot of parents now. Um, and and it's the most best selling video game of all time, even though it didn't have a plot, uh, just because you build stuff and act very creatively. Um, and it was popular enough that. Um, uh, another thing about it, slightly more technical, is that when you play it with other people, you're not logging onto um, a computer owned by a company that's that's acting as a central kind of node for people to play together. You're very often playing on a random computer under someone's desk on the world they created and made public to the world. And so I was able to write some programs. Um, uh, I'm an information science, data science type person, I wrote some programs that automatically visit um, hundreds of thousands of Minecraft servers to see how they're customized um, to solve the resource and governance problems that accidentally happen on Minecraft. So Minecraft is a game, people play it, it's a virtual world, and the virtual world has trees that cut down, that get cut down for wood, uh, and if you, if you run out of, um, if you cut down all the trees around your encampment, uh, you have to plant more. So that's a tragedy of the commons because someone might cut down all the trees and then there's none left for me. Everyone's incentivized to cut and no one's incentivized to plant. And so you end up with something that doesn't work for anyone. And that's something that communities come up with norms about. If you cut down a tree, you should plant it. Um, if you harvest crops from our virtual um, a field, you should replant the seeds. If you set off a bunch of creeper craters, which is there's these monsters that sneak up behind you and blow up and leave a crater. And walking over um, the crater pocked no man's land between your village and, and all the resources uh, um, is uh, uh, onerous because um, you have to like jump a lot. So there's norms that evolve on communities, this very specific thing to govern, which is that if you set off a creeper, you should refill in the crater. Um, and, and so those are virtual resources. There's also physical resources. If too many people are logged on, um, there's lag uh, and everyone has a bad experience. That's a common pool resource because if I log on, that can affect your experience. Um, 
uh, and that has to be governed and managed. There's things I can do that will mess up your experience. If I set fires in the game, or if I um, grow too many sheep, like it sounds weird, but if there's too many sheep, the computer slows down and my experience, experience is worse. So communities will come up with rules about the appropriate number of sheep to, to, uh, to grow uh, and the appropriate kind of way to connect um, so that everyone has a good experience in the game. Um, even exploring too much can take up computational resources that affect everybody. And so hundreds of thousands of communities around the world uh, are trying to make the computer under their desk serving this virtual world work well for all the people who want to use it. And these are anonymous people and these are young people. The median age uh, Minecraft player is 19 um, when, when I last checked. Um, uh, so there are, you know, there are adults, there's, a, but it's, a, a, you know, half uh, youth. Um, Including some very young youth, like 10 year olds. Right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, and, and all kind of being brought together, never met in person, don't even know like how old people are having to face these governance problems together and solve them together. And I was really inspired. Um, it brought me back to the my sort of co-op experience. And, and I saw it as a sort of miniature, simplified, um, stripped down toy instance of the same tensions of, you know, me dipping my fingers into the peanut butter and then into the jelly. Um, uh, and, and, but the better thing about it than a co-op is that my little program can automatically read what governance system you installed to solve these problems and the difference governance system that someone else installed and someone else and someone else. So I was able to do a big survey essentially of the governance systems that communities install uh, and, and how, how well they work essentially. Uh, let me just stop you here. What do you mean they installed? It sounds like this is a, a software and there are like discrete forms of governance that you can download and install on your software. That's or exactly on your, right. On your, on your Minecraft this server. That's exactly right. It sounds crazy. And what's even crazier about it is that, um, so this is called a plugin. So you install the server software on the computer under your desk to provide this world to people. And there's plugins to the software that you can also install. And the ability, the idea of plugins was created by the community and they modified the software to make it possible. The, 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 a, web, a single website that hosts these plugins was created by the community. Um, and every plugin was authored by community members. So um, they mostly do frivolous stuff like, oh, there's no idea of hats in Minecraft. I'm going to make a hats plugin or a pets plugin or, you know, more colors or something. But um, a lot of plugins do governance. They implement um, social hierarchy, punishment, uh, enforcement, monitoring, um, voting, uh, uh, whitelists and blacklists sort of uh, determine uh, processes essentially for deciding who's allowed to be on my server under what conditions, who can join instead of it being just private or just public, creating some kind of scaffolding for people earning their way in. So these are all things that people install. They, it's like an a la carte menu for governance where governance has been you know, cut up, sliced up in these little modules and you can just sort of flip, you know, turn different ones on and off until you have the system that you think uh, will work. It's sort of your folk theory of, of utopia in a way. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea that you can download a governance plugin for your Minecraft server. That's right, that's oh, right. And so you developed a novel way to 
to, to go out and survey all these these servers and i know that you you had to get rid of you know you had to prune servers that were not active uh you and you didn't consider the the big professional servers that were more there to make money um and so you ended up with something like five thousand servers that you studied that's right yeah yeah so out of three hundred thousand, i narrowed down to five thousand that i kind of trusted were actual community run servers that sort of had the right data were, were had my meaning of community i wanted to test what are the predictor what are the governance predictors of successful community i defined community as a number <laughs> which you know uh, criticize it as much as you want um not everything should be reduced by to a number but Numbers, you can think of a number as the shadow cast by a thing. Um, and some shadows tell us a lot about a thing and some shadows tell us little. And, and so by my, my selection from 300,000 to 5,000 was the subset of servers that if you shine the light from this perfect angle, the number tells you a lot. And this number community was the number of people who logged on to your server at least once a week for a month. That's it. Um, a month is a long time on a Minecraft server. You can kind of get to the end game a little bit in, uh, uh, in a month. Um, and that's how long, that's the, the billing for when you're paying for a sort of server, pro, uh, uh, provision. Uh, that's how that determined that's the, you pay every month. Um, and a month and, and committing once a week, a month, uh, uh, to your server when I, as a player could have joined any other of hundreds of thousands of servers kind of says that I'm making a lasting, you know, time extended commitment to your community. Mm -hmm. And so the more people who are doing that, the higher the number. So that's a number I tried to predict on the basis of the characteristics of the governance systems that communities tended to install. Another little angle we got, I also was able to get the intention of the, um, of the person running a world. Some people intend to have a community of just about four people. They're, they're after school friends or whatever. Some people intend to install a community of hundreds of people. And so I was able to see how your community number, your number of regular visitors matches your intentions. So that four is kind of a failure if your goal is 100. And it's a complete success if your goal is four. All right, so what did you learn? And, and how do you know that you learned it? All right, so um, overall we found that the more plugins you install, uh, the more likely you are to have a higher, a higher success. Um, it was, uh, this is especially the case if your intention was to run a really big community. If you're shooting for you know, uh, more than 50, you know, 50 to hundreds, uh, then um, it was absolutely the case that more the more more governance plugins you installed, the more successful you were. Um, and uh, and then looking within those plugins, you know, there's different. You can install an economy. You can install information sort of processes, information sharing processes. Uh, you can install plugins that sort of increase the di distance between the number of actions that users can perform. Uh, by forbidding certain actions like building TNT or setting fires, um, and uh, and the number of actions administrators can perform uh, by maybe adding actions that only administrators can perform, like rolling back the the world to a previous pre-vandalism state or banning people from the server for for bad behavior. So that fourth category in particular, well, no, and then there's another. So that fourth category in particular. Um, was really important, especially as you got larger. Essentially, um, communities that uh, 
further empowered their administrator that had a stronger leader that 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 created the idea of an autocrat tended to be more successful, particularly on large communities. Now, that's a little bit controversial. I can go a little bit deeper into that because that's I'm a you know, I'm a democracy <laughs> advocate, activist, researcher. I'm an ideologue about democracy. And so I was really looking for it in Minecraft and I did not find at all almost no use of voting plugins and a lot of use of, of you know, things that create a centralized administrator. And the way to contextualize this is to remember that um, unlike a, uh, in a country, it's pretty hard to vote with your feet because you need citizenship in a different country. You need another country to accept you. You have to change your whole life to change countries. So you can't really vote with your feet uh, in, a, in as a human citizen on a, in a, I'm sorry, in a nation on earth, but you can really easily vote with your feet on a Minecraft server. So, um, uh, tyrants on Minecraft are forced to compete with each other for citizens. And so um, I, my read is that that puts a kind of pressure on kids to learn how to be good leaders. Otherwise, they'll lose all their citizens. And so it's okay that people are selecting into dictatorships uh, to some extent if they're benevolent dictatorships um, and people can still get meaningful experiences online that way. So let me see if I got this correct. What you discovered is that as a community scales up in size, the complexity of the, the governance structure as measured by the number of plugins uh, or the complexity of the plugin also increased. And also there was a trend to go from something that might resemble democracy into something that resembles a, a benevolent dictator who knows that there are other benevolent dictators out there that you might leave to go you know, become subservient to. And so you can't be that bad of a dictator. That's right. Yeah. Oh, th this is kind of disconcerting, Seth. <laughs> well, it's not disconcerting for the leader. They're learning valuable leadership skills. Um, it's not disconcerting necessarily for the users because, A, they've seen a lot of good and bad leaders, and they're selecting into the ones that they trust or admire or respect the most. Um, now, ideologically, yeah, if you think democracy should run everything, uh, then yeah, it's disconcerting. But if you think democracy should only run really high stakes stuff, like your livelihood and not your video game, if, if you're prepared to run a really passionate democratic discussion about kicking someone out of the school, but you're not prepared to run that discussion for um, who ate my sheep uh, in my virtual world, then maybe it's not so bad that, uh, I, and honestly, I still think that there's meaningful discussions in these communities about what's right. There's a need for the, the leader to maintain the legitimacy, which means talking to people, representing their will. And so even though it is a centralized environment in a lot of these Minecraft servers, I do think it's cultivating a lot of fundamental skills of sharing and talking to each other. All right, this is very interesting, and we are going to try to map this back onto the, the analog world in a moment. But first, I want to hear about your research related to World of Warcraft. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. Um, uh, there's the same resource challenges. There's the same uh, social dilemmas around having to share things with other people. Uh, and there's... Um, uh, uh, and so, and therefore, there's uh, a lot of interesting cases and examples and, and data on the different ways that people go about that. Um, a really nice example is 
Okay, so World of Warcraft is a role-playing game, uh, you know, uh, um, Dungeons and Dragons type thing, right? There's trolls and, and monsters and, uh, and heroes, uh, and you have to work with other people um, in certain parts of the game to get valuable items. So um, people will spend literally four hours in a virtual raiding, virtually raiding a virtual dungeon to, 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 to take down a boss creature who's going to drop um, a valuable item. And the interesting thing about that is only one person can take it. So all four, five, 10, 20 people just put four hours in so that one person could get an item. And there's a lot of interesting schemes that the community, this was designed in the game kind of unintentionally. It didn't, I don't think the designers intended to create a social dilemma around that, but they did. And so the community had to step up and come up with clever schemes for deciding who gets the item. And you actually see everything. You see, um, uh, um, you see benevolent dictators where uh, everyone decides in advance that this one person gets to decide who gets the item. Uh, you see um, voting. Uh, you see um, sort of merit-based systems where people step up on the basis of how much they deserve the thing. You see, one thing that emerged just from bottom up is called DKP, dragon kill points. Uh, the dragon is your sort of euphemism for this final boss. And it's an it's a emergent currency, sort of, uh, that you get a dragon kill point for every raid you participate in. And the more you participate in, the more points you get. And at the end of every dungeon, if you want the item, you can bid for it using your, your DKP. So this is an emergent currency bidding system. These are all very like different schemes for solving the same fundamental social dilemma. And they're fascinating, uh, especially because it's, it tends to be youth um, uh, playing these games. So they're coming up with very mature, uh, clever um, institutional systems and mechanisms for solving uh, these uh, you know, everyday online gaming problems. And this is something that comes up a lot on this podcast, which is the the value of gaming and what kids see in games. And because so often, when a young person decides that you know they're not going to go to school anymore, uh, there's a lot of gaming that will take place. You know, th there can be other stuff that happens too, which is a bit more mindless consumption, like uh, Instagram or Netflix. But but gaming's a big one, and it's a real hot button issue for a lot of parents because it. Uh, in my mind, pulls up these associations with really mindless games that are much simpler, like like Pac-Man, for example. And and I came of age in the the '90s, and one of my favorite games was Diablo, which I think came out in '97, and that was one of the first kind of proto World of Warcraft type games yeah. where you collaborate with strangers, you go into dungeons, it requires long time investment. And, and we were a bunch of random people of varying ages. You never really found out much about these other people who had to collaborate and, and you know, create norms and, and little temporary Can you share what some of the norms were? Oh, gosh, that was so long ago, Seth. Um, <laughs> so, so no, I'm not going to be able to give you a, a, a good answer to that one. Uh, but I do remember that there was all of this structure that you were signing up for. And a lot of it was, you know, built in already by those who played the game before you. You know, a little bit is built in by the game itself. But so much of this was created by people like me, like 14-year-olds playing Diablo. And, uh, and so when I say video games and computer games have, have value because they are these complex worlds. Um, 
I think unless a parent has actually spent time playing a game of that caliber, it's hard to take that on face value because, you know, Candy Crush is a game also. And that's just not even in the same category. It's it's single player. It's very easy to figure out the rules. It's more of a time kill. And uh, you can even see almost addictive like like properties in, in that game because it's it's such a well-designed time kill. Uh, and so, so I'm actually I'm actually yeah. going to come out. Um, uh, this uh, maybe this is surprising. I'm a little bit more <laughs> on the other side. So I study games, um, and I don't think I also I I also think overall net they're a gigantic waste of time for humanity. <laughs> this is a surprise. Um, uh, and, and and not just not just children, but humans, because we and we have this misconception that most gamers are kids, and that's wrong. Um, I think that median age of 19 is pretty accurate and it's probably higher for games generally. Minecraft was a, a particularly young person's game. Um, so no, I, I think the drain on human potential uh, created by games generally um, uh, is, way not, is, is way more uh, <laughs> um, than, than we predict and is really unacceptable. Um, and I even think that to some extent for multiplayer games, um, nevertheless, I think it exists that they can provide meaningful experiences to people and meaningful experience um, and meaningful development or growth opportunities uh, for people, including kids. Um, and but the, the reason for that's not because they're not because games are great. The reasons for that is because um, any time that there's a bunch of uh, anytime there's something you think is important uh, and you need other people in order to get that thing. There's gonna be self-governance and meaningful communication and teamwork and cooperation and this really valuable stuff that cannot be taught in school, um, that has to be you know, earned through experience. And well, you know, for better or for worse, like games are providing a lot of that meaning um, to kids and, and, and other humans. And so that's where a lot of these experiences of leadership and cooperation, teamwork and self-governance are happening. And so if that's where it's happening, it's not my position to judge whether games are bringing something valuable to humanity or not. Uh, it's my obligation to follow people in the things they think are important and um, and be there uh, um, to watch them uh, develop uh, these mechanisms, institutions, processes, and, and meaning together. So th this is the what you just identified is the value I was thinking about in in gaming, right. and largely because uh, like the traditional institution of school offers so few opportunities for this kind of self-governance and self-organizing. And I really think that, especially with, with adolescents, you know, that is the meat and potatoes of what they really want and need to be learning. They want to figure out how society operates and their role within it and the rules and how flexible these rules are and when the rules can be broken. And yeah. um, I actually have an analogy for that. So yeah, uh, we, we, we learn, you know, civics by reading a book. Uh, uh, we learn um, history by reading a book. Uh, we learn art by making art. We learn music by making music. You wouldn't accept a music class where you just read about music, where you just read about artists. Um, 
Uh, so if you, if kids can make art in art class and make music in music class, they should be able to make history in history class. And that, that's not possible except online where you literally can create a virtual world that has had lots of people, uh, that has, has accumulated knowledge, accumulated norms. Kids can, can make governance and make history and make uh, collective meaning, um, uh, you know, when they're working together on something. And sc school, I don't blame school for not being able to provide that. That seems like an unrealistic thing to be able to provide um, uh, in any systematic way to anybody. Um, so there, uh, so having outside of school opportunities to do that is amazing, um, including in games. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's uh, school as a single institution, especially considering the ratio of, of, of like staff to, to students. No, it, it's it's controlled management of, of of a group of people that that you know cannot be allowed to like hang out in, at their homes or, or in the streets during the day for societal reasons and, and very practical reasons. Um, so I agree with you. It's maybe a bit unfair to say like you know why can't schools provide this, and that's why. Personally, I'm a big fan of things like unschooling, which are so flexible. Um, you know, it's it's difficult if there are no other unschoolers or people who think in this sort of self-directed, you know, let's create our own community, let's create our own adventures kind of way in your area. But when you do have other people like that around you, you know, the possibilities are are beautiful, and then you can use uh, the the world as your classroom, as the, the adage goes, uh, and you can really make use of. Uh, going into libraries, going into small businesses, hanging around, going out in nature when no one, no one else is out there on the weekdays. And and you can have these sort of, uh, I think what a lot of people now consider to be <laughs> old time experiences of just like hanging out in groups of kids and getting into to trouble and, and creating things and creating experiences together that, that seem almost quaint now as a relic of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, or, you know, of course, earlier. Uh, but now everything yeah. is, is scheduled, and it's a play date, and it's adult-managed, it's parent-managed. And so th the opportunity to have this sort of unfiltered, uh, un not top-down controlled uh, experience where a group of kids creates something truly, truly on their own, that's, that's fleetingly rare. Yeah, I, uh, so, I mean, you're phrasing it in terms of, of kids' experience. I'm phrasing it a lot in terms of human, like, uh, humans' experiences, kids being a subset of humans. It's, uh, the, you know, this idealization of kind of more unstructured time and more opportunity to come together meaningfully, uh, that the atrophy of that and the skills that come from that isn't just a kid's thing. Um, there's a there's a, a classic book called Bowling Alone that documents with the rise of television, people stop participating in local civic institutions like bowling clubs and garden clubs and town halls. Um, and then uh, the harm that does to society is that people lose the ability to share. Uh, they lose the ability to talk and negotiate and be reasonable and and recognize um, uh, a good leadership and recognize bad leadership um, and all these basic li literacies of democracy. And so um, the fact that kids have accidentally through something seemingly super frivolous stumbled on a way to give themselves those, those skills again, uh, we should be really um, in admiration. Yeah, that's a really good point. Good connection. Um, okay. 
Let's talk about the, the typical associations that people have. I, I want to keep focusing on, on kids, but feel free to bring it back to, to humans of all ages. Uh, let's talk about the typical associations that people have with, with unstructured large groups of kids and, and what, what takes place. Uh, the first thing that pops into my mind is, is the schoolyard, which is essentially, you know, if there were not monitors out there, recess monitors, then, you know, kids would be at each other's throats and there would be vicious bullying and, and, and that. And I think in many ways that that's true. It's, it's not just a, some myth or stereotype. Um, schoolyards can be really horrible places. And then going yeah, beyond we that, don't, go, we don't go have ahead. a lot of, we don't have a lot of political theory for how children should self-govern, but the, the little that we do have is something you and I have talked about is the Lord of the flies. That's like yes. the closest thing we have to a prediction about um, how children self-govern. Yes. Kill the pig, drink its blood. If I think that was the chant, if I remember correctly from uh, the famous William Golding novel. Um, so wh what do you think? Seth, like, do you have some sort of theory about like kids left uh, to their own? I, kids are never completely left to their own devices, right? There's always there's always some form of society or or some adult presence around, and so we're talking about about shades of gray here. But do you have a, a theory about you know when uh, ungoverned, uh, unformally governed systems, uh, uh, you know, work for kids? and when they, they deteriorate into the, these nightmares that we have? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to humans again. Um, I think children are really bad at self-governance, uh, and it's generally a bad idea. But I, I say that because I think humans are bad at self-governance, and it's generally a bad idea. But it's a less bad idea than everything else. <laughs> uh, self-governance is super hard. It has a lot of failure modes. Um, uh, it, it, it goes bad um uh in all kinds of ways but that's a grown-up problem right that's like uh if if children are messing it up like we can't really judge and i wouldn't argue that they're doing it worse than than we are um so so we we have to allow that there's going to be failures and embarrassing hilarious dangerous failures um but that's that's par right that's the standard um, and I think children are super capable of doing it um, just as well as, as any other kind of human. You brought to my attention an article I hadn't seen for a number of years, uh, written by Rutger Bregman in the, uh, the Guardian, called The Real Lord of the Flies, What Happened When Six Boys Were Shipwrecked for 15 Months. And this was near Tonga. These were some some Catholic boarding school boys who like didn't like the food, and so they stole a, a boat and sailed away. They were trying to sail to New Zealand, and then they ended up getting shipwrecked on a, a less than ideal uh, little island that was like not considered suitable for for human habitation. Uh, but there had previously been been human habitation like half a century ago, and uh, and, and it didn't turn out like Lord of the Flies did. Would you like to to continue yeah. the story and to tell well, me what you like, think about it. Like again, we're we're so surprised by these stories and we shouldn't be at all. Surprise, they took care of each other. They built stuff. Uh they one kid broke a leg and they said it and the doctor marveled at how well uh they they handled that injury. Uh and and that and while that kid set back, uh, all the other kids did all the chores of finding food and finding water, which was a big challenge for them, uh to survive and and bring, you know, to keep 
everyone alive and healthy for 15 months before they got rescued um, by an Australian or New Zealand captain. One of those two. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone had, had thought they were dead and they were rescued. Okay. Well, now I'm confused, Seth. How does this line up with what you just said about children and, and people of all ages being bad at self-governance? Why is it that these, these um, school that, boys were managed, did manage to survive and even thrive on this island? This right. was in 1965, I, 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 I believe, just for context. Yeah, I, I think this is, that's because they're human. Uh, and so uh, so they care, like we're humans and we care about each other. Um, and that's really what it, com- and they were given an opportunity to care for each other. And they had a super high stakes that this had to work or they would die. And so, um, uh, you know, they, they any, any, you know, mechanism, maybe if they voted, I don't know if they voted, any mechanisms they have, um, that that's not why they succeed. They succeed because they were given an opportunity in a high stakes environment to come to be there for each other. Uh, and, and that's the really encouraging story. I mean, when I say like humans about self-governance, I mean, they could have failed, right? Uh, and they could have failed for preventable reasons. They could have failed because of conflict. Conflict does happen and it does happen more than it should. Uh, but but that's it. That's nevertheless against an overall background of surprising, uh, not surprising, of uh, really valuable and noteworthy compassion and care uh, that um, they were. <laughs> I don't want to like romanticize it too much, but in the sense that they were given an opportunity to show for each other by being shipwrecked for 15 months. What do you think the modern equivalent is to this this shipwreck scenario in which? You know, you, what stood out to me is you said they really had a, a, a pressing need. You know, they thought no one was going to come to save them. And so they, they got their act together. To me, that's the difference between the prototypical schoolyard experience and something like being shipwrecked. But yeah. what what exists nowadays uh, for I, people, people of any ages? That, I'm, that, I'm, of, I'm of two minds as to whether online community... Um, provides the the stakes necessary for it to get that beautiful. Even if the stakes are lower for online community, I don't just mean video games. Um, online discussion forums like Reddit often have this strong, like close knit community structure and these rules and this peer enforcement, this valuable group identity, this ascent and experience with leadership. Um, so, uh, so there's a, lots of ways that you can get that meaning and collective identity and, and experience online. Um, some of them are straight up frivolous uh, and like very low stakes, um, but still probably valuable in the sense of um, there are rules and you should learn what are good ones and what are bad ones and how to enforce them and how to have legitimacy as a leader. Um, I'm thinking of Reddit communities like r slash funny, which is funny stuff. And it has rules like don't post memes. Memes are defined as this. And then and, and that's not what we mean by funny. And if you want to post a meme, post on r slash memes. These are sort of go to this other community. And uh, there's one called shower thoughts, which is like stupid, deep thoughts that you came up with in the shower. And they have a definition of shower thoughts. Thoughts about taking showers are not considered shower thoughts. Like these are rules that communities develop for themselves. And I can call that shared meaning and successful self-governance, and I do. Um, but it's, well, let's all say that it's a different level of deepness or meaning or value than um, teen support discussion forums, where there's um, rules about uh, how to handle people expressing, you know, suicidal ideation or self-harm risks, you know, that 
that is a different level of stakes and there's a corresponding different level of like meaning, but both provide meaningful like experience with self-governance, I'd say. Hmm. What are your favorite models that exist right now in IRL, uh, outside of the online world, of successful self-governance or, or have existed in, let's say, in yeah. the past 100 um, years? Honestly, having experienced, you know, I've lived in a, a, about a dozen communities and, and therefore I've seen a dozen different ways of, of self-governing, a, 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 dozen, a dozen different ways of bringing people together um, to solve a, a, set of, a set of shared problems. Like everyone needs food, everyone needs to afford rent, everyone needs to clean up after each other. So the problems are the same on all these communities and yet uh, no two do it the same. If you ask 12 people the right way to do it, you'll get 12 answers. And so I'm super pluralistic. I think way more important than this or that set of systems is, um, uh, is that your community came up through its own experiences of trying stuff out and failing and iterating uh, that everyone buys into. Uh, so it's really more the, the process of developing a system is to me is so much more important. Uh, permitting there to be a process for developing a system is to me so much more important than what system you actually end up with. Um, if everyone, you know, if it was, if it proceeded in some way that it required the buy-in of everybody, then it's going to have admirable qualities, even if it looks like from the outside, a, a dictatorship or something. If it's a dictatorship, but it was developed in an accountable way, then what you're going to find is outside of the written rules, there's a set of values, norms, and, and just a level of care and compassion that makes it sort of as if it's democratic. Hmm. I guess that's the lesson from the Minecraft servers, huh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question for you, Seth. If you could make some sort of tweak to the, the greater school system or education system that would give young people, I'm again, you know, my ageist biased here is, is showing through, uh, that could help young people get more direct experience with self-organizing and self-governance, you know, what would that tweak be? Um, well, uh, for, for better and for worse, um, you know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of depressed, obviously, to say that I have a lot more to learn from these communities than I have to tell them. Um, I still see really clever um, institutions and decisions and approaches, really clever problem solving from communities that tend to be, you know, very specifically tuned to the needs of the people and the and the affordances that they have access to. Um, clever use of the things they have a lot of to manage the small number of things they don't have a lot of. Uh, and so, um, uh, not. Uh, you know, as much for, for a, a kid's sake as for our own sake, um, I would love to see um, more opportunities uh, that give, maybe not give kids real, real power over things that matter, but maybe things that give kids real power over things they think matter. Um, uh, to, uh, and, and just some kind of space to build some kind of collective shared meaning uh, um, because uh, it's through that and through negotiating the inherent challenges of that um, it's the process of solving that problem and uh, that builds meaningful um, growth uh, in terms of cooperation, teamwork, self-governance. Um, and uh, um, an educational context seems like a natural place to offer that. I don't know what that looks like. I guess it would have to be different for every school, but mm. that, I would love to see that and I would love to study it. 
My guest today has been Seth Fry. Seth, thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much, Blake. Thanks, everybody.